Well, I was just I was just saying I was late to this podcast because I had to recollect some camping materials that I had lent out. We're going camping this weekend. Uh, I haven't looked at the weather, but I think it's going to be that fair high 60s, 70s or something. Hopefully no rain. But so here's 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 my question for both of you. What is what is the number one thing that you would recommend taking camping? And the number one thing you would say you definitely don't need that. Just leave that at home. How about you go first, guest? Hmm, the thing that you definitely need would probably be some toilet paper, right? You're out there in the woods, need some toilet paper. That is wise and pragmatic right there. Yeah, yeah. Uh, uh, the thing you don't need, in my opinion, would be a, a, a sleeping pad. You can just go without the sleeping pad. You can just take mm. your sleeping bag, leave the sleeping pad at home. It's bulky, it's heavy, sometimes it's heavy. Yeah. But yeah. Leave it, leave it at home. You don't need it. Wow. I, you know, I hadn't thought about that, but I think that's spot on because I've slept on a sleeping pad many times and you know what? It's not comfortable. So you might as well just like sleep on the ground and then you don't have to worry about that. Hmm. Yeah. That's smart. We of course, we have the, uh, nowadays we have, we have two kids and, uh, we have, we have the cots, we have the car camping. We haven't done rustic <laughs> camping in a long time, but the cots, man, that is the technology. That's really nice for camping. I enjoy that. But yeah, no pad. I like that. All right. How about yourself, Richard? Yeah, I was going to say money for a hotel. But I guess <laughs> hey! That's, uh, that's how I camp. Uh, <laughs> well, you don't bring his kids. So this is all just coming from a dark place. Uh, no, I think you know, I'd have to bring something with some sort of GPS tracking because I have zero mm. sense of direction. Yeah, so, yeah. My brother seems to camp every other weekend in Arizona, and I think he likes to get lost, but I would get lost and, and be dead shortly. That's so right. So probably GPS. Really. I, either, either bring GPS or a small pen knife so you can free yourself from boulders should that happen. There you and, go. And, and what would you, aside from the kids, apparently, <laughs> what would you not take? Uh, I mean, ideally, you don't bring the phone, camera, whatever, so you actually enjoy mm. the scenario you're in. I know it's harder nowadays, but... I don't know. There's something about actually putting your head up and looking around where you're going nowadays. Yeah, yeah. That is a tough one. As 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 the uh, mobile device becomes multi-purpose, what with the GPS and the camera, uh, what are you going to do? My my wife still likes the uh, traditional digital camera, so we have we always have one of those, which which is it actually takes really good pictures, but it always feels a little strange to use that. But uh, I guess we'll take one of those. I'm well, sure. well, why don't you introduce yourself briefly, guest? Sure. Uh, my name is Marisa Dale. I'm a product design manager in the Washington, D.C. office. I've been there for uh, just over two years. I just had my two-year anniversary. Oh, two years. I, as the joke goes around here, you're a veteran then. <laughs> <laughs> yes, maybe that's so. That's right. Well, uh, we'll, we'll, we'll come back to uh, you, you. You had a, a Medium post called the Technologist Hippocratic Oath, which I thought would be fun to talk about in the overall context of it. But first, as always, we'll go over some uh, relevant news items. What do you What do you want to start with, Richard? Yeah, let's see. So Amazon had a little uh, get together last week, some sort of little show, and they announced a bunch of stuff as you are wont to do at these sort of events. So some a lot of security related stuff. I threw some links here in the show notes. A new secrets manager, uh, which actually has rotation of secrets, which sounds oddly familiar to what we do with Bosch and Cloud Foundry. So clearly, rotation is catching on. Uh, there's also firewall manager, certificate manager, just some good things as you're trying to actually build some of the machinery around your apps and your platform from a security perspective. So, hey, people seem to care about that. 
Mm-hmm. Yeah, we had a little discussion of that on my uh, my other podcast, Software Defined Talk, where I uh, I, I learned a, a fun uh, work hack where if you don't know something, you should just allow yourself to look unknowing in in public. And and I had to be like, so how does secrets management actually work? By this time in my career, I should probably know that, but I have no idea. So we had uh, we had uh, I took some goofy points on the board so that uh, I could understand it, which I think is the enlightened thing to do. But yeah, that's a yes. uh, Always plenty of fun security stuff. There was a snarky register headline about uh, <clears throat> the the Werner guy saying, you know, this is not a sales event, and then going on to give you all the sales numbers. But what are you going to do? Marketing, <laughs> you, am I right? What's up with those people? Right. I don't know. <laughs> so, so uh, what do we, and, yeah, and then yeah, also yeah. I uh, I see that uh, that that riff had a, a, a milestone uh, in the literal sense of the word, I guess, or not literal, but it's you know not figurative. I've lost track of my uh, figurative literal stack there. Anyways, they had a, they had a release coming out, and I, I was noticing that because I was in, um, as mentioned last week, I was up at uh, the spring tour in Dallas, which was fun. It was it was an enjoyable event, and uh, the I think the number one thing that people asked about that uh, we didn't have someone in the room who could answer it uh, in in a detailed way was people really wanted to know about Riff. They're crazy for the serverless. And so it's uh, it's good to see that's proceeding there. We'll have to we'll have to figure out maybe in the spring tour if we can incorporate some more of that in because that's that clearly a uh, a hot topic. Yeah, and that team has absolutely zero sense of marketing because they keep shipping on Friday nights at six p.m. Pacific. <laughs> that's so, right. Uh, they, but they, I love it. You know, they want a clear news there. day. Yeah, they, you know, screw it. We're going to ship when we want to ship. Damn it. So they uh, they ship uh, an update Friday night. Riff is the open source function as a service platform runs on Kubernetes. Pivotal's pioneering that at the moment. So it's just making good progress. It's really gotten to be a nice installation experience. It's gotten to be a nice point if you're a function developer, like just write your code, run a riff command, it gets go deployed to the cluster, run this on-prem, run this off-prem. It's still obviously early days. It's 0. 0.0, what, 0. 0.06. So you know, probably don't put this in prod at the moment, but love the momentum. Team's doing great work. As you say, everybody loves the serverless. That's right. Yeah, I, I was I was thinking recently. There's this there's this uh, bifurcation of like we should call it function as a service versus serverless, and how serverless is ridiculous. But I don't know. I feel like serverless is a cooler name. We should we should uh, we should stick with that. But we'll probably use FAS. It's just it's a I don't know funner brand name for it. We'll we see just if always that do things changes. on the negative. Like no sequel. Oh yeah, that's right. Can we just we never do it on the positive side? We're always saying what something is not, which is always fun. Man, you might turn me around with that because you know I'm trying to be a better person as I age. So maybe I should should be be less negative. I have to shut down my column at the register. And is there is there a positive place to write tech news? I'm I'm not sure that's that's possible. I don't know what the opposite of the register is. (laughs) Good Hmm. housekeeping. Like I don't know what would possibly be uh, more uplifting. (laughs) Good good glass housekeeping. We need to start that up, and then also uh, next week is the uh, the Cloud Foundry Summit. You know, we had uh, was it last week? We had uh, we had Abby on. No, last week we talked about our fact stuff, but a couple weeks ago we had Abby on to talk about what was going on in the CF Summit and uh, our our session highlights. There's also the Green Plum Summit coming up, and and as as Richard summarized it, basically you should attend be attending a summit somewhere next week. So there's plenty of summits going on, uh, and you remember bring toilet paper if you're gonna you know go to a summit. And uh, you don't need a uh, you you don't need the the bed rest money for a hotel room and uh, you know what what did you want to leave behind Richard your iPhone 
Bring a GPS well, yeah, and leave it on your iPhone. You should have GPS. I mean, the signage is good at these things, so you mm. probably do not GPS tracking. That's right. So, so we'll be fine. And then, and then uh, what, what's the availability zones in Azure? Yeah, I, I threw that one in there. So Azure added availability zones. If you're an Amazon customer, you'd say they don't already have it because Amazon's had that for, gosh, I think 10 years. And this idea of having multiple distinct physical buildings within a region. So if this building collapses or whatever, runs out of power, your workloads might be striped across availability zones. So that's been a feature in Amazon for a while. A lot of people have copied that. Azure just made that generally available. And what's interesting here, Kote, you and I would have to do the math if we were so inclined, but every cloud provider kind of counts their geographic reach a little differently. You know, Azure talks about their regions and they have a ton of regions, but some of those regions only have one building. And then Amazon talks about AZs and Google talks about whatever Google talks about. And there's no normalization necessarily of who's actually in the most places. Mm. So if everyone does availability zones, maybe that starts to normalize it. But up until now, everyone likes to brag that I'm twice as big as this one or that one, but you're not factoring in square footage or actual geographic locations. It's just cool vanity metrics. So maybe we're actually going to make it consistent now. Mm. Yeah, that, that always reminds me of, uh, of uh, like in the early 2000s when all the hardware vendors would like try to like, uh, on, on the back of the magazine, they would talk about how many like, MIPS they had or or processing cycles and you're comparing like you know spark chips to intel chips to like mainframe things and it sort of like was was hard to make sense of that and they could have all those benchmarks there man those benchmarks are crazy but uh yeah someone needs to normalize that you know like like uh i guess it's mostly for pricing but owen rogers over at 451 i think he does a pretty good job of uh finding the commonality between all these cloud things and he's got his uh his pricing baskets and stuff like that it's always fun to see what he comes out with well uh also just as a reminder so we not only had a spring one tour last week but we've got all sorts of them coming up throughout the year i think the next one is uh on may 14th to 15th in denver then later on in may there'll be one in st louis and then london and los angeles and new york all the great places uh, over over in Asia, several places as well, and uh, there I, I I think they're they're either relatively cheap or if you can find yourself a, a pivotal sales rep, I bet you can get a very deep discount. Uh, but but you can go to those and and it's it's basically two days of I would say mostly uh, highly technical talks from people about using Spring and doing all from all the way from architecture to actual coding to the uh, sort of lifecycle management that you have. And then you can also do, uh, there's like an open spaces thing where you can, uh, the audience gets to propose various topics they want to talk about. It's, it's a nice, uh, a nice affair. And, uh, I, or someone on our team, Tasha does all the catering, excellent food. So, uh, it's not just as they say, rubber chickens and, uh, you know, Jason's deli, nothing wrong with Jason's deli, but you know, sometimes you want to upgrade, get, get your, uh, fancy sandwiches and other meals. <laughs> so, uh, I think if you go to uh, spring tour, dot io i should really it's probably spring one tour i should know these things yeah spring one tour there you go dot yeah. <laughs> io uh you can check that out and uh, sign up for them you know before we get to the uh the topic here that reminds me someone actually asked what the io in pivotal.io was for not not like literally what it's for for like indian ocean or something but just what the thinking behind it was and and it occurred to me that it's been so long since us us uh tech people have used dot io that I, I don't really think about it, <laughs> like like exactly what it is. Right. So I don't uh, remember who started that. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I, I feel I feel like an early explanation I read was that like 
project open source projects used to do it and it was sort of like one it was cool because it was two letters but it was also like input output or something like that so i don't know that's what's always stuck in my head and then also i i forgot we have uh what is it one more week for the uh the actual spring one platform cfp that's right yeah it's time so after this podcast because you're listening intently block off the next hour write an amazing <laughs> abstract whether these are case studies tech talks you know explorations of an architecture you know, and I think the fun part this year is it's not just, well, I don't have a spring talk. Um, I'd love to hear talks, and, you know, Cote and I are part of the review teams, but I'd love to see talks on just straight up serverless or Kubernetes or .NET or microservices. Of course, spring stuff's something we love to see, but we've actually broadened the, the uh, agenda a bit. So you have a week, come up with a great talk, get it into the CFP. We love case studies. We'd love to hear how you're using tech, the good, bad, and the ugly. We don't just love positive, everything's awesome talks. I think each year, I mean, Kote, you see these too. We see the, hey, this didn't work right. And not even product-wise, but like team-wise. Or, hey, we tried this and it didn't work. We had to learn from it. So if you have those, please uh, please get those in. It's a fantastic show, and we hope to see you speaking there. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, you know, I, I, I pretty much only like the uh, the talks that are the uh, the meatware kind of talks of, of the people and the process and all that stuff. I mean, there's plenty of other good technical ones, but I feel like those uh, those take care of themselves to some extent. So if you have some uh, some story of how, how you've been struggling or succeeding or hopefully both of those, I think it's, I, I don't know. I, th- I think I, I haven't done the bubble chart, but I think it's probably one of the larger, better uh, conferences that goes over uh, how things are working and not. Advice for your transformational journeys. We, we we should suggest that as the tagline. Can can we fit yeah, that all that, on on a .io site? <laughs> you can do that and bring your meatware. I think we'd have amazing attendance this year. That's right. Yeah, but it'll be a good conference, and we'll see if there's some new little eight bit art that they do for uh, various people. So uh, so uh, all all of that wrapped up. Uh, why, why don't you, why don't you give us a um, you know as long as you want kind of a summary of the uh, the post that you wrote your your Hippocratic oath like what. Uh, you know, for, first, first, let's kind of go over what uh, what's in it, and then I'm really curious to hear about like how you came about wanting to uh, to write that. Sure. Yeah. Uh, do you want me to just read experts of uh, little sections of this, or should I just kind of just shoot from the hip and summarize? Yeah, yeah. It's always better to shoot from the hip. We got a very large target. No precision needed. <laughs> All right. Um, so I think like the overall idea is to get back to the core of what we're trying to build and who we're really trying to build it for and what those outputs of what we're building, um, what they affect, who they affect, uh, and in the different facets of that. Um, So making sure that we're not doing things for financial benefit or the lure of status, but making sure that we're mindful of the consequences of the decisions that we make on our products and um, the impact that it has on a, on a potential user outside um, when they begin using this thing. And I think that um, all too often, myself included, it can be um, really easy to forget sometimes, you know, the real humans. We call them users a lot of times. There's all these different names uh, that we have, but we tend to whittle this down into just thinking about it in terms of uh, just a, a 
an entity, somebody with no face, no name, really. Um, and I think that making sure that we understand the impact of real humans with real lives, with the things that we build, um, is really, really important. And I think that's just kind of what the the oath was trying to get at. And and so so like uh, I, I forget I I could easily open it up and get the precise number, but but I I think there's maybe like eight or ten different uh, principles in there, and like like what like like what what are you trying to capture with that like what what's kind of like the end goal that you're trying to get towards i mean i mean as you're saying like uh you want to keep people in mind <laughs> and 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 any type of like ethical thing has like some end goal in mind and like to to you uh like if this software is following the the oath and it's done in in, in an ethical way like what's going what's the result going to look like like what is it going to accomplish yeah i think maybe in order to answer that, I could back up a little bit and just talk about why I wrote it in the first place. Um, I think that the reason that I wanted to write this was mostly just personal to begin with. You know, in DC, we have a lot of government clients. It's mostly government now. Uh, and we've been I've been working with them for the last two years on a lot of really complex systems that have a, a really big impact on a large number of people. And that's felt very consequential to me. Um, on top of that, I have a young child who um, is, you know, I'm starting to watch his interaction with technology and how he's adapted that um, very readily and, and how, you know, hook cycles can really get him. He's just especially vulnerable um, to like, to hooks. Um, and and uh, I, I, I think all of that was just sort of culminating into wanting and realizing that we didn't have uh, any oversight or any um, ethical frameworks as technologists to really think about what are the implications of, of what I'm uh, using here, these, these tools and these, these powers that I'm wielding as a designer, as an engineer. Um, and I realized that uh, I think that there had been a few other people who had talked about it. And I was also thinking, why is there not a coordinate or some sort of uh, something similar to a Hippocratic Oath um, which do medical doctors use uh, once they graduate from uh, medical school um, as sort of a, a fallback to, you know, am I making the right choice? Questioning yourself in the moment of, you know, is this really what um, is, is going to be helpful for my patient um, and not just helpful for me? And, and I was just thinking and realizing that we could use something like that. That would be really helpful for myself initially uh, and then I, so I wrote that. I used the Hippocratic Oath, um, the medical version, as a template and created basically thought by thought, line by line, um, something somewhat of a coordinate for technologists. Yeah, you know, you know, it's, it's, uh, how, you know, going through them, right? Like, like it's, it's, you can kind of reverse engineer what you're saying that if you're working on these, uh, well, in your case, government projects that have a big impact. At some point, you're sort of like, "Holy crap! Like this has a huge impact, <laughs> right?" Like, like it's uh, so you start to tread a little more carefully, and 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 then also like I'm I'm curious, um, sort sort of like if I were to clump together the principles, there's there's a for for something that's sort of saying what is the uh, here are some principles for thinking about the impact 
that that your work has on people, right? How it could negatively and positively affect their life. There's also like kind of a smattering of I don't know what I would call like inward facing things, like how how one should think about themselves, not necessarily like like the users they have. Like as as I guess I was. Uh, in my subconscious, like, uh, sort of connecting to, right? Like there's not being ashamed that you don't know something and like getting help from other people to, uh, get input to it. And then also there's the part of, you know, uh, you know, the one preceding that of like, there's, uh, I should think about this being a craft that I have and instead of something else. And, and it's, it's, uh, like, what, what was your motivation like for putting sort of, uh, here's how you should think about yourself types of things. How does that fit into the overall goal? Yeah, I think uh, what I was going for was really trying to get people to ask a couple of more things of themselves, you know, mainly why. Like, I think, you know, as technologists, as designers and engineers and PMs, we need to ask why more. I think the question how gets asked a lot. You know, I think, um, you know, how I, how might we, uh, how fast can we make this, you know, how how can we grab the most market share? Uh, how can we beat our competitors to markets? We ask how a lot, but we don't necessarily ask why. And I think that you know, flipping those questions and asking why more um, is 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 paramount. And I think that it drove some of those those points that you just um, pointed out. Um, I also have been really realizing that we don't talk about saying no very often. Um, we in the the oath, I talked about you know we are the gatekeepers, which has also been mentioned by uh, Mike Montero. You know we as individuals, we are part of this collective system that is building a piece of software. We as individuals play a big part in that, even though it may feel small. We can act as gatekeepers. We have the ability to say no, and that agency should be used more often if we feel like we need to. But I feel like a lot of people don't, individuals, technologists don't feel like they have the agency to be able to say no if they if they need to. Um, and they should. They should know that they they have that uh, wherewithal. And the, the more that you use that agency, the, the better you are at, at using it more often if you feel like you need to. I think too often um, we... We say, oh, that's going to be somebody else's problem. That's not really my responsibility. I'm just here for a paycheck. We we diffuse and we uh, you know externalize uh, the blame. We shift the blame a lot, um, but it is on us. You know, we are a, an integral part of of this thing being built and being put out in the world, no matter how small we feel like our role is, and uh, we need to take onus of that. I feel like, you know inspiring people to take more onus over the work that they do um, can have some really great outcomes. Yeah, so I thought I'd follow up with that. I mean, some good points there, especially because you named a few of the people who make up a team. I mean, there's no, maybe one person in some of these balanced teams. I mean, it could go up to a vice president or a founder who says, this is kind of the product we make, and this is the point, or a product owner who prioritizes a set of features that may encourage certain behavior or reward people a certain way, or anything that we might consider even ethically dubious to a developer who builds it, to an operator who runs it, to marketing who positions it. So, I mean, as you look at the, it can be easy for, I would think, for someone to stick their head in the sand and go, I was just either following orders or, hey, this kind of made sense for the code I was writing. I didn't zoom out to the general component of how I was maybe using data maliciously or just even in kind of a sketchy way for targeting or how we were, maybe even the app we were building itself is of, of some sort of dubious nature. So how do you look at the whole team and start to figure out how do people either take on responsibility or not just say, hey, that wasn't my fault, or 
you know, in these bigger scenarios where you're not just a team of one, how do you approach the ethical quandary? Yeah, and I think that that's why I diverted that back in the oath to uh, the individual, right? Each individual knows the part that they play in building the product. So again, that introspection is really important. You know, what is the developer who's being asked to take the settings and hide it in a potential you know, social media platform, for example, has the ability, even though they're not the one that prioritized the story or maybe even uh, came up with that story to begin with, they are the one executing on it. So they have that wherewithal and that right to be able to like say no, you know, like let's push back on this, let's think about it a little bit more. You know, privacy settings are really important. That needs to be higher level. And here's why I feel that way. Um, I also tried to make sure that I try I, I try to leave it open as much as possible because I know, yeah, Pivotal has balanced team, PM, engineering, design. Um, but there's so many more roles and responsibilities outside of that as well. Um, and those are absolutely, in my mind, incorporated into this. Um, the technologist word in and of itself uh, feels more open to me. And, and I liked it. I liked that about, about that word. Sure. Do you feel that sometimes these things get, again, we all love it. It's funny. Sometimes it do you think there's an impact in the fact that we like small incremental changes versus Big Bang, which means sometimes these things do, I mean, maybe it's cheating to say they sneak up on you, but it's, sometimes it can be a combination of things that become, I would think, the bigger ethical thing. Like, hey, let's refactor how we do our settings pages. That's not by itself nefarious. It may have maybe stuck something somewhere else, but that by itself wasn't it. But as you finally then ship and you look back six months later and go, gosh, we made it really hard to opt out of you know, ad targeting. You know, do you ever think, or is that cheating? Is that, do you know what you're doing? And that's just a, a way to make that excuse to yourself, even though you're incrementally maybe moving towards something a little sketchy. Yeah, that's a really good question. Um, I think there's a couple of different ways to think about that. So um, at least in Pivotal's model during DNF, I, I, I personally feel like we could spend a little bit more time thinking about outcomes, especially long-term outcomes. You know, we, uh, we, push to MVP as fast as we can, and then we roll off to the customer. Um, and we don't really think about the longevity of the product that we're putting out in the world. Uh, that could definitely be something that we collaborate on uh, with our clients a little bit more. And that can that can be thought of um, as best as possible in DNF. Uh, and there could be some frameworks that we use for that. You know, what is this product gonna do in, in five years? What is it going to do, you know, three months after MVP? What's it going to do in 10 years, 30 years, or upon its death? Um, and those are really, you know, good questions to be asking in DNF. Now, that being said, we don't necessarily know the outcomes of that. We can't anticipate all out outcomes, right? It's, we can do our best, you know, like, how could this be used potentially um, in, in a very dubious way? Um, and we might be able to generate some ideas, you know, what are the what are the positive impacts of this? Well, we can counter that with what are the negative impacts? How might it might how might it be manipulated um, and used in the way that we don't want it to be used later on? Um, you know, such as like Facebook and and Russian bots. You know, accounts that aren't actually valid, things like that. Um, not necessarily something that they could have thought about in the beginning or anticipated, obviously. But so that that comes to the second part of it, in that like testing is really, really important in all of this. So even after, you know, we hit MVP and we're still, you know, pushing out features, 
it is so, so, so important to be still in touch with the user, seeing how the product is impacting them, seeing how it's being used and manipulated, accessing that data um, of knowing who's signing on and making new accounts and where those accounts are from, things like that, so that you can put some blockers in place at the point where you're detecting it earlier um, and being able to mitigate it right away. Because ultimately, we're not going to be able to think about all the outcomes or all the different nefarious ways that something could be used. Yeah, that that raises that pulls together a, a, several things. I was I was curious to talk about, like one of in to 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 phrase a little bit of of what you're saying in my own words, like uh, in the same way that we would continuously monitor whatever business goals loosely defined we have with the software, right? Like are people buying more stuff, or can we handle more case management if we're kind of like more of a government thing, or whatever goals you have, or are we meeting the productivity targets we have? There's probably also like this continual checking in of like how evil is the stuff becoming, <laughs> if if at all, and we we should mindfully sort of look in and see what's actually happening and not just get stuck up on the uh, the only the, the performance dashboard metrics. Um, and so and so like I mean I don't I don't know I, do you do you have like some examples of people monitoring for that kind of thing I, I don't really. Other, other than the the scathingly obvious, right? Like foreign powers interfering with stuff they shouldn't. Like you know, spying is an easy use case. But like, what what are some of the other ones that you need to monitor for that might be, I don't know, sort of like subtly not cool to to be happening with your software? Or maybe they're all obviously not cool. <laughs> to put it another way, how would you like how would you monitor for that and check in on it? Yeah, sure. Well, I mean, I think that inevitably you're going to be getting feedback from users. I think users will be your sort of canary in the mine, if you will. Um, you know, if if there's some sort of AI that's starting to come up with misogynistic comments, for example, you know, your first indication of that, um, hopefully you'll you'll have found that in testing yourself. If for some reason it's starting to learn these things on its own. Uh, and doing that over a longer period of time where you may not be as in touch with it, uh, your users may be more uh, using it on a regular basis than you are, uh, and they identify it first, there's probably some, uh, if you are in touch with your users, they're going to be giving you that feedback right away, submitting it through an app, sub, uh, you know, uh, if you're doing testing with them, it's going to come out in the interviews, Things like that. So I think that it's it, like, again, it comes back to um, being in touch with the end user uh, and always having that product like in front of them and seeing both like in the short term and the long term how a product is behaving. I think very often we we put new features out in the world, we test them, we make sure, sure, short term looks good, like release it, let's go. And then it's sort of just off on its own out in the world. Well, there's not so much longitudinal studies done about those feature sets um, over the span of months or even years, potentially. And we could do a lot more of that to really understand, okay, what is this data that we're getting back from the long term on this feature set? Is it being successful? Is it behaving in the way that we want it to, to behave? Yeah, that, that makes sense. I mean, and, and it uh, it's, it's, it's another thing that comes up often just purely with the, a... Uh... I don't know, a more user-centric 
or person centric and sort of agile approach to things, which is uh, you should probably pay attention to your software beyond releasing it <laughs> and, and like continually check in on how it's doing and how people are using it. And, and part of that is like looking at if it's not only like helping people accomplish what they want with the software, but doing it in a good way if it's behaving. And I, I always think analogously that it's sort of like, uh, you know, like hopefully as, as my kids get older and whenever they turn 18, it won't just be sort of like a project and then I'm out, like I'm not paying attention <laughs> to them anymore. And I'll, and, and, you know, bi-directionally we'll sort of uh, help each other. We'll treat each other as, as products and uh, be able to continually check in and improve each other versus just sort of like, you know, I, I, I think the way a lot of companies who are groups that put software out, they sort of, uh, it's almost just like packing your kid up in, in, a, in a car and then waving goodbye and then forgetting they ever existed instead of remaining involved in their, uh, their lifelong well, term. That's again your project versus product mindset, right? I mean, if I'm, if I'm going to stick with the software, then I'm probably looking at usage and, and tweaking it, especially based if things are going sideways versus, hey, this is starting to misbehave. I guess we'll form a project team in next year's fiscal budget to maybe tweak something. Hopefully that uh, that won't be as possible as people actually start forming their software teams around the products they're shipping. Yeah, and that's such a differentiator for us too, right? Isn't it? We work so closely with our clients to be able to carry on the work after we're done. We don't just chuck it back over the fence uh, after MVP and then just hope for the best, right? We're enabling them uh, 40 hours a week, every week throughout from the very genesis of the of the project kickoff. So in that way, I think that we can prepare them for these things too and, and, and testing in this manner as well. Yeah, I mean, do you think as we talk about this kind of increasing role of software and this, this thing as we are keeping track of it, do you find that the responsibility might change now post-release? I mean, you know, whether it's Uber and self-driving cars, there's other things where, like, where do you start to pin responsibility on something? Sometimes you can say it's the software, but the software is not magic. Somebody wrote it. So mm -hmm. how do you see the the impact of this as software becomes more pervasive? Maybe we just haven't solved these problems yet. And we're still debating it. But in your mind, how do you start to think about the kind of post-release ownership of things when something ends up going sideways? Yeah, that's an interesting, that's an interesting topic. That's really hard because I, I feel like, we're always trying to pin down one person or one one person who is who is responsible or one person to blame for negative outcomes like the uh, like the Uber accident, uh, for example. And I think what it comes back down to, or at least where my mind goes, is that these are really complex systems. You know, they're a part of a larger system. Right. Um and they're built by so many hands and so many different people with so many different kinds of input. It's and obviously there's, you know, a user who's also involved and and plays a big part in that overall bigger system. And it's I, th I think it, it's probably too difficult to just pin down one person to say, OK, this is the person who's responsible. We're going to you know make them we're going to make them pay for this consequence. Um, I, I think that we all need to take collective ownership. And instead of, you know, having our fingers pointed in, in either direction across us, you know, to to the people on either side. You know, the, the onus and the responsibility comes back to us as individuals. You know, like, yeah, I work for Uber. I had I had a part of that project. I had a you know responsibility in that too. Just like all my projects in DC. Yeah, you know, the outcomes, I feel like I am in part responsible for those as well. 
Yeah, that's sort of like uh, if, if if you were to throw together like the uh, the five dysfunctions of teams and all the uh, blameless postmortem work and, and make some sort of smoothie out of it. There's sort of the uh, I always think one of the more nuanced things that's raised in those points is uh, the system is what's responsible for things, not not necessarily like and therefore none of us are responsible for it, but <laughs> but right. that that we all need to be conscientious of building this system and building uh, this machine that creates this output and and usually that means that again it's not that it, all of this isn't to absolve everyone from something, but it means that the responsibilities typically spread beyond just one individual who did something, right? And and I think that's a lot of the uh, the the wisdom of blameless postmortems is like, sure, it was like 3 a.m. on a Saturday night, or I guess a Sunday morning, and uh, someone typed in a command and brought production down, but what's everything that led up to that point of absurdity <laughs> that, that, that put that in place. And, and it does seem like having that broader analysis of stuff, especially whether it's like bringing down production or, or the kind of things we're talking about here, like that's really the main thing that's going to fix things, not the, uh, the Hollywood-esque like lone hacker who screws things up. <laughs> no, no doubt. Yeah. I just suspect as we get to, uh, you know, again, as you saw with Uber or other things, I don't think the public as a whole loves that answer, even though, you know, we in tech maybe have learned a bit about blameless postmortems and blaming the system when a person makes a mistake. It's because the system allowed them to. And I think people are dumb. It's just you always look when the kid knocks something off the counter, they can't say, well, it fell. No, it didn't. Like you pushed it. Right. I mean, there's something somebody owns it. And so it's always tricky to say, well, the system failed. Well, OK, well, who, who's accountable for the system? Then somebody has to take responsibility. And these are these are good debates. Hopefully our listeners, even in their own companies, have these discussions over lunch because they probably all work with something that could have some sort of ethical side effect based on their financial stuff they're working on or government or media or whatever. So this isn't nobody's immune from it. I hope we just start talking about it more. Yeah. I, I, whenever my uh, son or daughter like knocks over and breaks our priceless uh, vase, uh, they'll, they'll have to come up with the reply like, well, you shouldn't have put it there because clearly it was going to get broken. Well, right. That's the system answer, right? You put exactly. It in the system. What can you do? You, you knew this was going to happen. <laughs> well, um, uh, so, so I, th- I think, I think, uh, I mean, as, as the last kind of topic, so, so you, you, you have this post here and, and you know, I, I was interested in talking about this because, well, hopefully, like many people, like I, I've been curious about this topic uh, recently of like, how do we uh, how do we inject more like ethical and moral thinking into stuff that we do? Because obviously, uh, it's easy to be negligent and have problems happen. So like, and, and there's not, I've noticed there, there's actually a, a lot more commentary and writing on this topic than I thought there was originally, but it doesn't seem like uh, a mainstay of what we do. I mean, there's probably more writing and thinking on how to calibrate on story points than there is on like how to do like ethical software. So, so what do you, what do you think like are the, are the sort of next steps to uh, like, I don't know, broaden this out and and make it more widely thought about? Yeah. I think it could go a lot of different places. I mean, like you said, it's a it's a pretty hot topic right now. And I feel like our industry is is in some ways going through a bit of an existential crisis, um, kind of figuring out, you know, who we are and where we're going, because we've realized that move fast and break, break things doesn't work anymore. We need to slow down. You know, the, the, the things and move fast and break things ends up being people. It ends up being democracy. It ends up being security. 
you know, and those are things that we don't want broken. Those are things you can't put together again, or if you do put them together again, it's extremely difficult. Um, so, you know, there's a lot of talk about, uh, you know, industry oversight or at least uh, oversight for designers um, having some sort of standardization or something like a bar that you have to, you know, test and then pass. Um, you know, who knows if that's going to be a thing. Um, but we, I think ultimately, you know, we, we do wield a lot of responsibility and we are really coming to terms with that right now. And I think it's good. I think it's, it's a really good time um, before we get any farther with the technology that we already have, before we get any more advanced than we are to really stop and think, okay, what is this that we're using right now? How can it be used um, against us? potentially, uh, and how might we mitigate something very terrible before it, it happens? And, and I, I do think that whatever um, comes out of it all um, will hopefully move us in the right direction. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, you know, it's, it's like the, uh, the old saying, don't, uh, what, I forget how it goes. Don't, don't miss the productivity option of a crisis <laughs> or whatever. <laughs> I think there's a more concise way of putting it. The, uh, don't, don't miss out on the opportunity of a crisis. Well, great. Well, well, thanks for being on to, uh, to go over that. We'll put, we'll put a, as always, a link, uh, in the show notes since we didn't, uh, verbatim read the, uh, the principles there, but that, that was a, that was, that was a, a, a great piece of content to get out there. And, and I appreciate you going over it with us. Yeah. Thank you Thanks for taking the time. Sure. Well, well, as always, this has been pivotal conversations. If you want to find all of the uh, deliciously exciting episodes for next week, maybe you've allowed yourself to take your, uh, what was it? Your, your, your Roxy Rio thing full of MP3s out for camping because you, you don't want to listen to crickets and you want to download some old episodes, you can go to uh, soundcloud.com slash Pivotal Conversations and find those episodes and some that we've highlighted. And every Thursday, usually, we uh, post the full show notes uh, for each episode over at pivotal.io slash podcast. And remember, you have one more week if you've listened to this on more or less the day that we recorded it to go submit your thing to a spring one platform, which will be a uh, fun conference to have or to be at. So uh, you should go do that, or at least come see us at one of our uh, spring one tours. And with that, we'll see everyone next time. Bye-bye. <laughs>